Leadership in churches has varied from church to church, from city to city, and from century to century. Let's talk about the development of church officers on this episode of the Gospel Gumbo Podcast. Hey there, you are listening to Season 1 of the Gospel Gumbo Podcast. I would like to make a Season 2, but I'm not sure. I'm going to pay attention to three things to decide if there's going to be another season. Downloads, feedback, and money. You can encourage Season 2 quicker if you'll do these two things. First, rate and review the podcast on your podcast player. It helps people find the Gospel Gumbo Podcast. And then number two, send me an email with encouragement corrections, suggestions for a new topic, or whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. The New Testament talks about various official roles in church communities. Some of the labels seem to have interchangeable titles at times, such as elder and bishop, and other times they seem to be distinct, such as elders and deacons. And then there's one reference that distinguishes between elders who teach and those who don't. In the book of Acts, Paul appoints elders, and he instructs Timothy to do, the, to do the same. And the elders have some sort of responsibility in the church. So from the start, church communities had specific people who were officially in charge and responsible for various specific tasks. Over time, these roles changed as the church grew and expanded, and as the culture and historical context changed. I'll talk a bit about these changes, but I hope that you know right from the start that this is a very broad overview, and the specifics of various roles and responsibilities are incredibly complicated and nuanced. Nonetheless, overviews can be helpful. So, here we go. In the earliest Christian communities, the biblical term bishop, which was from the Greek episkopos, was used to designate overseers or supervisors responsible for spiritual guidance. Meanwhile, the term elder or presbyteros referred to the leaders providing pastoral care, and often these were the same people, but sometimes not. Bishops became more administrative, and over time, many churches in a local region uh, were under a bishop, while elders tended to have responsibility for just one community. During the earliest centuries, deacons were mostly tasked with practical ministries such as caring for the poor, the elderly, the sick, the orphans, and widows, which is how we see them operating in the New Testament, too. During various plagues and persecutions in the Roman Empire, the deacons were on the front lines of that sort of ministry. I cannot emphasize enough how much the roles of these church officers changed when Emperor Constantine legalized and then mandated Christianity in the Roman Empire. With state-sponsored churches, church officers became political figures, and church communities became civic organizations. The church communities got buildings, which grew and grew. Worship services became elaborate and showy. Bishops became more like regional governors, and elders were required to hobnob with the rich and powerful. The deacons were the supporting players in elaborate worship services, making sure that the vestments, the robes, special dishes, and bowls were taken care of. Now, not all this happened at once, but it was a process that took hundreds of years. With the state-sponsored churches, everything changed. After the first few centuries, there was a, another sort of leader that emerged that would later be called doctor in the church. And these were theologians who were 
incredibly insightful and prolific, such as Augustine of Hippo and John Chrysostom. This was not an official office of the church, really, but they occupied a kind of authority that was different from the offices of bishop, elder, or deacon. These doctors were very important in the establishment of what we consider orthodoxy today. Articulated in the theological discourse uh, that was vibrant and often centered around councils, including the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon. As the church expanded, the role of the Bishop of Rome gained prominence. And by the 5th century, the Bishop of Rome was called the Pope, and it claimed a special place of honor. As time goes on, the Bishop of Rome gains more and more power. Technically, the Pope is still the Bishop of Rome. But Pope has become invested with more and more power and authority over time. This rise in authority led to tensions between the East and the West that helped to fuel the split between the Eastern and Western churches. And so from here, we're going to talk about the Western churches because it's what I know and what probably is most relevant for my listeners. As the decadence and corruption of the state-sponsored churches grew more and more, many people began to be disgusted with the church. Rather than abandoning Jesus altogether, they withdrew and formed somewhat isolated communities away from the corrupting influence of the wealthy and powerful, and thus monasticism was born. It really started in the Egyptian desert and then blossomed in the West with the establishment of Benedictine monasteries. Monks and nuns withdrew from society, dedicating themselves to prayer, study, and work. Monastic orders such as the Franciscans and the Dominicans uh, grew more and more. Each community had their own rules and their own focus. These various communities contributed so much to the theological thought, the care for widows and orphans, and many other missionary endeavors. They're also responsible for copying the Bible by hand to make sure that it was preserved for us at a time when many churches had very little regard for the Bible itself. In many ways, the monks and nuns were the remnant that preserved the gospel for us during very dark times in the church, which ironically were also flashy and glamorous times in the church. The monks and nuns voluntarily were celibate, and many of their communities became extremely popular with most of the common people in medieval times. As the Roman church realized that it was losing the power and influence over the morality of the people, they began to institute celibacy for their elders, whom they called priests, uh, who were all men, as a way to copy and try to win back, uh, try to copy the, the nuns and monks in a way to win back the majority. It happened slowly over time and in various regions until it was a universal requirement that for all Roman Catholic priests starting in the year 1123. Think of that. For more than half the time that the Roman Catholic Church has existed, the priests were able to marry. During this time, the oldest universities were founded, like the universities of Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. Over time, these and many others helped to develop the theologians who are regarded as the doctors of the church. Now, just a quick aside. This brings me to a pet peeve of mine that I know that I need to let go of, but I just can't. There is a difference between a doctor and a physician. A doctor is someone who has a doctorate degree, who has studied a particular academic discipline to receive the highest degree in a university. A physician is a doctor of medicine or surgery or something like that. And as it turns out, I have a doctorate of ministry, and so I am a doctor. In the early days of the oldest colleges and universities, there were really only three standard things to study at the doctoral level, medicine, 
law, and theology. Some schools had specialties in astronomy or physics or mathematics or biology or history or other things, but every school offered medicine, law, and theology. But I think it's high time that we recover the older meaning of the word doctor. All right, let's get back to our uh, our lesson here. In the 13th century, Pope Boniface VIII officially recognized the new office of the church, the doctor, and proclaimed four of them all posthumously, St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, and Pope Gregory the Great. Since then, the Roman church has recognized many other men and women as doctors. It's not a biblical role, strictly speaking, but it is a good one. And I would love to see Protestants recognize doctors as well. Speaking of which, let's move on to the Reformation. The 16th century Reformation catalyzed a seismic shift in the landscape of the church offices. Martin Luther challenged the authority of the Pope and advocated for the priesthood of all believers. The hierarchical structure of bishops was questioned, leading to the rejection of Episcopal authority in some Protestant traditions. The Protestants also challenged the requirement for elders or priests to be celibate. In the Reformation, the deacons were directed back to the works of practical ministries such as serving the poor, the widow, the orphans, and the elderly. Now, that was certainly not universal, but in some places it was a really big shift, and that was a good one. Protestants have been pretty mixed on the roles of various offices because there is no universal practice. In some churches, they follow the Roman Catholic practice of seeing the office of deacon as a transition to becoming a priest or elder. In other churches, the office of deacon is of a totally different nature. In some Baptist churches today, the deacons do the work of administration and pastoral care, which has traditionally and biblically been the responsibility of elders, priests, and bishops. In some churches, the roles are well-defined and everyone stays in their lane, and in other churches, things are more fluid and contextual. The individualization of churches has allowed for a plethora of new officers. I've met people who hold church offices of apostle, high priest, and prophet, which are all fairly new in the history of the church. Well, I hope that you have good officers in your church, men and women who are humble, courageous, wise, and gifted by the Holy Spirit, full of faith and grace. If so, I hope that you give them the honor they are due. And if not, I hope that you can support them as they grow into their office. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Gospel Gumbo Podcast. I would love to make season two, but I need to make sure that it is worthwhile. So I'm paying attention to three things, downloads, feedback, and money. It costs money to publish a podcast and not a small amount of work. Now, if you'll give me just $5 once, I'll give you your own private podcast link that will have all the episodes from season one without any advertising, plus 10 extra bonus episodes. At various levels, you'll also get a lot of other cool stuff. Now, I'm not looking for a subscription, just a one-time purchase that will help me to know that this podcast has been helpful and that you would like me to make another season. Look for the show notes of this episode to find the link to give money. Podcasts are getting gobbled up by big corporations and conglomerates. Independent podcasters like me need your support. Thanks so much.